Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thanks for your grace and mercy. And uh, thank you now for the opportunity to talk about a really hard topic and know that uh, it certainly has touched people in this room and, and might still be. Uh, people that we love and care about. So I pray that you'll help us to see the grace of Jesus available in the darkness of depression. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is depression like? Um, Let me read you the account of somebody who experienced it. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He's caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He's made my chain heavy. And even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my way with hewn stone. He's made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait like a lion in secret places. He's turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He's bent his bow and he set me as a target for the arrow. He's made the arrows of his quiver to enter in my injured parts. I have become a laughing stock to all my people, their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He's made me drunk with wormwood. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace, and I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. You know who it is? Jeremiah. From Lamentations chapter 3. David echoes similar things in the Psalms. But if you hear that, you you hear features of depression. Um, Feeling attacked. Feeling alone. Feeling like you're walled in and you can't get out. Feeling like even when you pray to God, He's not listening. He shuts out prayer. Forgetting what it's like to be happy. I don't enjoy the things I used to enjoy, feeling like God is against you or even God is out for your destruction. Um, Losing hope in God, losing hope in life. Um, Being physically weak, feeling like your bones are broken, feeling despair, you're tired all the time, but you can't sleep. and That's depression. And uh, I want to encourage you, if you've ever experienced depression... Um, the Bible has something to say to help you. Because there are men and women in the Bible who felt just like that. And God put those accounts in the Bible to remind us that there's hope for you and there's hope for me when we go through seasons like that. Um, Not only is it shocking that something like this is in the Bible, 
But uh, who was Jeremiah, by the way? He's the prophet of God. This, this is a godly man who has ministered for over four decades of faithfulness to bring a message to a people that utterly rejected it. This is a faithful man. This is a godly man. This is a called man. And so you know what this does? This shows us that godly people can sometimes experience the darkness of depression. Um, Now, as God ministers to Jeremiah, he's going to help him to see there's a way out of the darkness, right? And there's some things that Jeremiah needs to change in his thinking and, and the things that he contributed but th- th- this, is a, this is, can be an experience of very godly people. Um, we don't have to be afraid to talk about speaking to one another. We, we shouldn't be a church where we can't talk about this sort of struggle because it is uh, a common struggle of even very godly Christians. We can look in church history and, and see, again, godly men and women that struggled. Um, but that's something of what depression feels like. If, if you've never been depressed, um, those are some of the features. It's estimated that 25% of Americans will experience depression, bipolar tendencies, or an anxiety-related disorder. Um, the National Institute of Mental Health, currently, the data currently says that about 21% of all people will experience a season of depression at some point in their life. If we move on to world statistics, um, approximately 5% of the world's population, or 350 million people, are said to experience depression. Um, so this is a common thing. And uh, again, the, 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 Bible, the Bible has so much help. Uh, so if, if you're here, and, and maybe it's now, maybe it's in your past, maybe you're walking with somebody, I've got good news, and that is the God of Scripture cares about you and has wonderful help and encouragement to offer you in a season of depression. The experience is real pain and suffering. Um, if you've never experienced depression, it might be tempting to think when you come across somebody that it's just quote-unquote in their minds. You know, it's just kind of a mental thing and they just need to try harder. And, and that's not the Bible's perspective. Uh, the Bible's perspective is that this is a debilitating, overwhelming situation of real pain and suffering. Uh, but praise God, we, we have a wonderful Savior that will help us in that situation. Um, when we think about the DSM, again, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, we're not, I'm not giving you this because we're necessarily relying on it, but just so you kind of know what the cultural landscape is like. There's all sorts of depressive disorders today. Uh, and then um, disorders that are called mood disorders that have depression as one feature of that. So, for example, bipolar 1 and 2 both have a depressive element as well as a manic element as well. So that's kind of the way um, depressive disorders are understood today in the psychological world. And remember, we've talked about this before, but remember... Um, DSM labels are descriptive only. We, we talked about this with ADHD um, a little while ago, but you know, so when someone gets a major depressive disorder or a bipolar disorder or a uh, you know some other um, some other label that is reflective of a depressive symptom, remember that that is merely a a label that describes symptoms. 
There's no etiology or pathology, meaning there's nothing in that label that says, here's what's wrong in causing my symptoms. Um, they're descriptive only. And again, that's not saying it's not real. Okay, don't, don't misunderstand. When I say label only, I'm not saying it's not real. The, the pain, the suffering, the symptoms are real, but the label does not in any way uh, address a pathology or etiology to the situation. Um, so how is a diagnosis made in the secular counseling world? Uh, for a major depressive disorder, uh, a patient must experience five of nine symptoms during a two-week period, and then uh, they, they have to be clinically significant in terms of the distress, and they're not attributable to some other medical condition or situation or substance that they're on. And the diagnosis is made based on the patient's communication to the practitioner and the physician or the counselor's actual observations. Um, so this is, again, I, this is sort of education. Sometimes, sometimes people think you can go to your doctor, they take a blood test, and they say, oh, you have depression. That's not the case. Your, your doctor might do a blood test, but that's not to diagnose depression. It's to rule out other conditions that might be leading to your depressed feelings. And uh, I read a recent article just a couple years ago that, um, kind of embarrassing for doctors, I guess, Uh, maybe not, maybe you take this for what you thought, I thought it was interesting, 25% of psychiatrists and over 65% of primary care doctors admit that half the time they don't use DSM criteria to diagnose depression. Now that could be because they're really, really good at what they do and they just know those criteria. Or it could be that sometimes our medical community, our counseling community gets a little lazy or gets a little sloppy, if we could even say it like that. Okay, so, so that, that tells us that sometimes people are getting labels and it may or may not reflect actually fitting the criteria. Now, when we even use the word depression, we immediately have a, a problem, and that is, what do we even mean by depression? What, what does that mean when we use the word depression? Well, well, think about it in our culture. Depression might mean, when someone says, I'm depressed or I'm experiencing depression, it might mean that they have a diagnosis made by a licensed professional based on current DSM criteria. Right? It could mean that. It could also mean a label that has been self-assigned by the struggler or a friend or family member, what I affectionately call GSD Google self-diagnosis. <laughs> right? That's the world we live in. You know, ask your parents, ask your grandparents if they're still alive. That was not the world they grew up in. They didn't grow up in a world where you went to your doctor and you said, Doc, this is my problem and this is what I want you to do about it. But that's the world we live in today. And in some cases, you have patients that have read medical papers that a doctor hasn't even read, right? So we live in a strange world where we have lots of information available. Some of it's helpful, some of it's not so helpful. But what's happening is people are self-diagnosing at a level that we've never been able to do. And and I would say it's different if a 16-year-old Googles depressive symptoms and diagnoses herself as having a major depressive disorder than if a medical professional who went to medical school, is state-licensed, evaluates that patient, and comes to the same conclusion. I would say those are different. Uh, not necessarily saying one's right and one's wrong, but one, one person has a little more experience and training to be able to do that than the other. So it could mean a diagnosis by a professional. It could be a GSD scenario. It could be a perceived state based on popular cultural use. 
um, you know, I've got I've got uh, teenagers. I've got a, a almost 21 year old now, and um, listening to their friends, you know, they talk about depression like going to McDonald's. You know, it, it's just it's just normal. I'm so depressed today. Oh, I am too. You know, and, and they just talk about that. And when they talk about it, they're not necessarily saying I've met DSM criteria and I've been nine of the twelve. And no, they're just saying it's how I happen to feel. And what used to be called feeling stressed or down in our culture is called being depressed or anxious. So language is changing. How the modern generation is interpreting their own feelings is changing. Our, our generations today are using clinical language to describe what are often normal life experiences. Again, if I, if I call up my 96-year-old grandmother and say, Hey, Grandma, let me run this by you. And I draw out a scenario. You know, my son or daughter is saying, I'm so stressed, I'm so anxious, I'm so this. And she and my grandma is saying, What's the problem? That's normal life. Right? And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying my kids aren't actually experiencing hard things. I'm just saying how it's being interpreted is changing. And so when you hear depression as a counselor, don't make assumptions. Right? You need to figure out what do they actually mean by that. It's slang for sad or really down. That's what my teenagers say. Um, so here's what's interesting. If you go to your Bible and you go to the concordance and you look up depression or depressed, you'll find a couple of instances in most of our English versions, but you don't find what the psychological world is talking about and you go, well, maybe God just forgot to put it in. Maybe that's what it is, right? Actually, what we find, I think, is that God's wisdom is wiser than men in that God doesn't have one term for this big thing we call depression. God actually has much more precise terms because in the wisdom of the Bible, depression is not one thing. It's not one thing. In our culture, depression is something of a bucket that describes different things. If we went back to Lamentations and read Jeremiah, we would recognize that there were certain things that he was doing that led to his depression. But if we go to Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 and read about the depression described there, we get a very different scenario. If we read about David's depression or Paul's depression, again, they're different things. The sadness might be similar, but what's provoking the sadness, what's producing that can be very different. And the Bible says, don't put it all in one bucket. Figure out what's going on in the heart. So that's what I want to do with you tonight is just talk about uh, my understanding of Scripture is that depression is really just a big bucket that houses many different things. The, the first step is ask lots of questions. You say, why? Because you're trying to unmask the depression. You have to remove the mask, remove the label, and say, what's going on in my person's life? And that's one of the challenges, right? The Bible does not use one term. It uses more precise terms. Let me give you some examples here. Here's just a partial list. I love you, so I looked at my whole Bible here. So, no, no, and, and I, this can't even be exhaustive because there wouldn't you would have too many notes. But the Bible connects all of these experiences and responses to depression in some way. Interesting. Uh, we'll look at this in a moment. Very often, anger filters down and morphs into depression if it's not dealt with in a biblical way. Normal grief can filter down and morph into depression if it's not handled in a biblical way. 
loss when it's experienced can filter down and morph into an experience of depression if it's not handled in a biblical way. And in all three of those cases, you would counsel people slightly differently because the cause is different. Does that make sense? So one of the the bad parts about having these labels is, you know, labels can be helpful because rather than say, did you do this and this and this and this and this, you can just say, I have a major depressive disorder. So labels are helpful because they take all these symptoms and they say, okay, I meet all these symptoms, I have a major depressive disorder. One of the downsides of labels is that they they can become a person's identity where a person begins to think of themselves through the lens of the label, right? I'm an alcoholic. I'm bipolar. I'm schizophrenic. I'm whatever, right? And again, it, that, that's helpful in terms of, okay, I understand this person's struggle, but when that label begins to become a person's identity, that's not good. And even, even secular people are saying that, right? So, so labels need to be careful that, that it doesn't become the person's identity. But more to the point of what I was saying, saying a minute ago, the other danger of a label is it can flatten that person's experience. Here's what I mean. If you're doing formal counseling, you're reading the paperwork, and it says, you know, major depressive diagnosis, okay. And you say, I know what that means. I've read the DSM. It means they meet this and this and this and this and this. Don't let that label keep you from getting to know that individual person's experience. Don't let that label keep you from listening well and asking questions and getting to know what is it about this person's unique life experience that's led to this. Sometimes that label can fool us into saying, oh, I know what this person's problem is. And then we're off to the solution and we haven't listened well. We haven't got to know that person well. So again, I'm not saying what labels are are bad. I'm just saying we have to be careful that we don't misuse a label and, and use that label to bypass getting to know that unique person's experience. The Bible's perspective on depression is that depression is, you know, a, a label in a sense that houses many different things, and we want to figure out what those things are. Thirdly, uh, labels can imply an etiology and often direct the course of treatment. Sometimes we hear a label, and because it has a medically sounding, you know, air to it, we think, oh, this must be some sort of biological, chemical, physical problem. When in fact, again, remember, psychological labels say nothing about pathology, etiology, causation, or what we do about it. It's merely describing a set of symptoms. <clears throat> now, again, a lot of theories are going to say, well, we think it's caused by this, that, or the other thing. But that's not a function of the label itself. That's a function of the practitioner's theory about why that might be the case. And as we talked about again, um, when we talked about counseling systems or worldview systems, remember, labels introduce a worldview. Uh, Labels are not neutral. Labels come with a worldview, and sometimes that worldview is going to compete with the Christian worldview, and we need to be uh, careful of that. So again, if if someone says, I've got this label... And to them, it's a medical disease issue, and that medical disease belief leads them to not assume responsibility for moral choices that they're making. We would say that's unhelpful, right? Because they're, they're moving away from what God would say. So just remember, even though they can be helpful, that labels are not neutral. They're never neutral. And we need to be careful both in how we use them and be careful as we're talking to people about it. Okay? Uh, I'm going to blow through this because we've already talked about it um, with the, the, the psych meds talk, but we understand the biological model. Um, I don't think you have any blanks, right? 
I did better on the blanks on this one? All right, cool. Um, so we talked about this, right? The chemical imbalance theory, theory, we give people meds that said to fix them. I've given you all the same quotes there because those are uh, particular to depression. Okay, so I'm just going to blow through this. We talked about this. We'll save, make up some time in the air here. Okay, so go, go to the point where it talks about the biological model continues in popular, popularity. Here's those same statistics, 50-75%. Uh, CBT, electroconvulsive therapy, even placebo. This is interesting. So they did a study a few years ago where, um, okay, you, you've, got, you've got 100 people that uh, go on an antidepressant because they have a, a depressive disorder. And uh, let's, say, let's, say 75%, let's say 75% of those people improve on the meds. The study showed that of those 75 people, 82% of the people got better because of the placebo effect, not because of the drug itself. And you go, whoa. That's, that's pretty significant. Now, again, that's not saying the drug isn't actually doing anything or, or, you know, antidepressants don't have a therapeutic mechanism. Likely they do. What, what the research was saying is for a lot of the people, the um, improvement that they received was based on the placebo effect, not based on the actual therapeutic mechanism of the medication. And uh, so, again, take, take that for whatever you want. And, and again, don't hear that and say people aren't really having depression or they're really not suffering. No, they are. They really are suffering. And we really do want to help them. I think as Christians, the, the, the question is, what is a biblical, wise, Christ-like way to care for them? And, uh, and, of course, that's not just helping them feel better. It's helping them to actually thrive in their walk with God and realize all the graces and wisdom he has for them. Okay? Now, this is new, so let, let's slow down here and um, I'll, I'll bring you up to speed on this now, okay? So, let's think wisely about feelings. Let's think wisely about feelings here. Part of the problem in our culture is that we're pretty sloppy in our language. You know, we, we, we throw around words like emotion and feeling and, you know, we, we say the word feel when we really should say think. When I say, I feel like a Grumps hamburger... What I really mean is, I want a Grumps hamburger. And you're saying, what's a Grumps hamburger? There's a great hamburger chain right over here, Granberry, best deal in town, best burger in North Texas. Anyway, um, it is, it's true. But I'm, I'm using language wrong, right? I don't feel like a Grumps burger. I want a Grumps burger. I'm using the word feel when I should be saying want or desire. And we use that word feel in all sorts of different ways. And that really can become counterproductive when we're trying to help somebody. Let me, let me make sense of this for you, I hope, okay? In the Bible, the Bible gives us two main category of feelings, and I want to show you this. So turn in your Bible with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. In context, uh, Jesus is present in this verse. And uh, you'll remember the story. This is where uh, Jesus is on the boat and uh, he's asleep. And the storm rises up. And, uh, and this is interesting, right? The, the, these, are, these are seasoned fishermen. These are the best of the best. The storm is up. Jesus is, where is he? He's asleep on the pillow. They go and they wake him up. And they say, Lord, don't you, don't you care that we are perishing? 
And it's a wonderful story. You know, remember he gets up, he speaks to the winds and the waves, and then obeys them, and they freak out because it's like, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey, right? They're with the Son of God in the boat. You say, why are you taking us to this verse? Because I just want to show you, Jesus is sleeping. That's the point. He's sleeping. Here's the theological question. Why is he sleeping? Because he's tired. He's sleepy. There you go. Okay. This is a demonstration that even Jesus in his humanity had feelings. He got tired and had to sleep. He was hungry and needed to eat. He was thirsty and needed something to drink. We read this all over the Gospels that in his humanity, in his human nature, he experienced all of those feelings and we call those somatic feelings. Somatic feelings. Feelings that come from your soma, your body. You say, why are we calling them somatic feelings? Because some feelings arise in our human experience because of exclusively body processes. Right? You're hungry, you're tired, you feel sick, you're thirsty... That is because your body has a need or it is fatigued in some way, right? Those are called somatic feelings. We contrast that with what we call affective feelings. Affective, uh, affective with an A, right? They, are, they arise because of affections or because of the operations of your inner man. Just flip the page to Luke chapter 10 and look with me at verse 41. This is Jesus as he's going to visit Mary and Martha, right? And uh, you remember the, the story. He walks into the house. Mary wants to sit down and sit at the Lord's feet, listen to him. Where's Martha? Uh, she's wandering around in the kitchen behind all the pots and pans that are clanging and burners that are running, and right? Luke chapter 10, verse 41. Jesus talks to Martha and he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. You say, what's the difference? Jesus is pointing out her worry, her anxiety. That worry and anxiety, though it is a feeling, right? It's an experience of feeling. Jesus is saying here, that's not coming from her body. It's coming in terms of how she's responding to the situation, right? He says, you're worried and bothered about many things, But actually, there's only one thing you should be concerned about, right? And that's what your sister has chosen. Jesus is saying those feelings of worry have arisen because you've made a moral choice in your heart to respond a certain way. You say, where are we going with all this? You need to understand, I need to understand, that feelings in the Bible come in two buckets, right? They can be somatic, they come from the body, or they can be affective. They come from the spiritual part of you. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Somatic feelings, affective feelings. Uh, Things like being anxious, fearful, angry, those are all affective feelings. Okay, so with that in mind, let's ask a question then. What what exactly is an emotion? I would suggest to you that emotions and feelings are different. Okay, Because the Bible's saying you can feel hunger, feel sleepy, feel sick. That's not an emotion. That's a body feeling. An emotion is a feeling that happens because you respond to life in a certain way, like fear, like anxiety, like anger. Um, So if you want to sort of graphically illustrate it, 
if, if we're going to call that an emotion, emotion is an effective feeling that comes from a heart response. Does that make sense? You say, what's an emotion? Emotion is comprised of a certain way of responding in life that leads to that effective feeling, right? That, the effective feeling is, is your body's sensation when you and I respond to life based on what we're thinking, trusting, responding, hoping, worshiping, etc. Now, what's interesting is the feeling itself is not sinful or righteous, right? It's just a body state. But what is sinful or righteous, where are we here? is the heart response. Because the Bible is going to say we can respond in our hearts in ways that are sinful or we can respond in our hearts in ways that are righteous. So an emotion is a heart response, an inner man response to life that produces an effective feeling. Are you with me? Making sense, okay? And you say, why is this important? The Bible never asks you to repent of your hunger. It doesn't ask you to repent or confess your tiredness, the cold you have, the cancer you acquired, right? The Bible doesn't call us to spiritually intervene with body feelings, right? But it does have something to say about those affective feelings, those emotions, right? The Bible's going to say, be anxious for nothing. It's going to say, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you. It's going to say, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God. See, guys, the Bible does not command our somatic feelings, but God does command our affective feelings. You ready? And maybe this is new to you. God actually commands our emotions. Our emotions aren't Neutral, they're not things that just happen to us. Our emotions, according to God, are things that need to be aligned with our walk with Him, our, 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 our walk of faith with Christ. So those are moral issues. Those are sinful or righteous. Okay. So if you're with me on that, let's come back now and let's try to build a biblical model of depression in light of some background here. Okay. What contributes to feelings of depression? I'm not saying what creates depression. I'm, I'm going to say feelings of depression, right? Just, just when I feel like that, what contributes to it? Well, let's, let's run through the list here. First of all, you can have body issues that contribute to feelings of depression. Issues going on in your body that lead to feeling ill, feeling down, not feeling yourself. You say, what are those issues? Medical diseases like hypothyroidism, pa- Parkinson's disease. I have, I have two friends right now that are going through Parkinson's uh, disease right now. Both of them have seasons where they just really, really feel down. And um, that is a feature of the disease for many Parkinson's patients. We talked about hypothyroidism earlier. So certain medical diseases might result in uh, depressed feelings. The effects of medications can sometimes lead to depressed feelings. Body changes, hormonal issues. Sometimes a, a mom, after she gives birth and her hormones are, are changing following the postpartum experience, will go through a season of feeling down, not feeling herself. We call that postpartum depression, but, but it, it's really a, a physiological created feeling of down, right? As those hormones are changing. Uh, sometimes body neglect or overload. 
when we don't sleep enough, when we're too busy, when we're not dealing with stress in a biblical way, that can lead to feeling down or feeling not ourselves. Uh, but there's also spiritual issues. These are, these are the affective issues, right? Um, directly or indirectly, these are always in play. You say, why is that? Because even if I am sleepy or even if I am uh, having Parkinson's disease or, or some other deal, I still have to respond to that out of my heart, right? I still have to deal with life before God. And so spiritual issues are always in play. Um, when I'm dealing with uh, depression. I'm going to show you in a minute how spiritual depression develops and how it's alleviated. But for now, just remember, you don't have to know the exact cause in order to help somebody. You don't have to know the cause. Uh, Now, is is, making sure they get medically checked out important? Yes, do that. I'm just saying you don't have to know exactly why they're feeling the way they're feeling to be able to come alongside and care for them from the Word of God. Okay? So, let's build a biblical model here. Turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. This is a really interesting narrative here. Genesis chapter 4, as you're turning there, what's interesting about this narrative, uh, you know the story, it's Cain and Abel. And uh, you've probably heard this in Weekend 1 as well, somewhere. You know the story, uh, Cain and Abel, right? Um, Both of them bring sacrifices to God. God accepts Abel's sacrifice. He does not accept Cain's sacrifice. And what's interesting about this story is God is the biblical counselor. We get to see God be the biblical counselor. I'm thinking this is a pretty good model to follow, right? So let's take some notes here. Watch what happens. So, again, God accepts Abel's sacrifice. He doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice Chapter 4, verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And that little word, little phrase, countenance fallen, is one of the many ways the Bible describes the experience of depression. He was depressed. He was discouraged. He was despairing about it. Now, watch the biblical counselor of all biblical counselors go to work. Here comes God. Verse 6. Then the Lord says to Cain... Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Now let's just let's just stop right there. What does that tell us about the experience of emotion, or in this case, the experience of depression? What's that tell us? Just just in God's questions. You can talk, it's okay. There's a cause, right? It's not random. What else does it imply? Yeah, it's real. What's that? Yeah, that that God asks him like he expects Cain to know why it happened. Isn't that interesting? He's not asking him hypothetically. He's asking him because God is saying, Cain, you know something about why you're feeling like that. And that's that's so helpful. Now, now remember, God's omniscient, right? And and when I hear this, I kind of think about, remember when our kids were little and you observed the criminal activity that your three-year-old just committed, Right? And you're going and engaging your three-year-old, not because you don't know, but because why? You're, you're engaging in the discipleship effort, right? You're shepherding. You're, you're, you're drawing out the heart, right? Not because you don't know, but because you're wanting to parent your child. And I kind of think that's what God is doing here, right? God already knows. He's not asking him because God doesn't know. He's asking him because he wants Cain to think about what just happened. And in asking the question, God is implying 
that there is a cause to his depression and anger, it's not random, and that he expects Cain to know something about why it happened. Okay? Now watch this. Look at the next part. He says, um, verse 7, if you do well, and uh, we could translate that, Cain, if you do what is right, will not your countenance be lifted up? Oh, that's really interesting. Here's what God is saying. Cain, there's a way in your depression that you can respond that's going to do what? It's going to alleviate the depression. We go. That's really hopeful, isn't it? That's really encouraging. You know how many people think they're just stuck with their depression and there's just nothing they can do about it? And this text is saying, God is the counselor. There is something that we can do in responding to God where God says, Cain, those feelings of depression will improve if you do what's right. But, look what it says. But if you do not do well, what? Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. That word means to control you, to take over your life. You ever met somebody and their depression is ruling their life? It's their depression. It's their emotion that is controlling their life, right? That's what God is anticipating here. If you're not careful... In a moment like that, and it's not just depression, any negative emotion, you're in a very vulnerable position. And if you will turn to God in repentance and faith, which is what Cain should have done, if you will listen to God's counsel and follow it, which is what Cain should have done, God says there's great hope for you. But if you don't, you are in a very, very difficult spot. And if you're not careful, that that emotion, that sin will take over you but you must master it, right? You're in a dangerous spot. So what are we saying here? Effective feelings, right? Things like depression and anger follow things like how we interpret, how we evaluate, and how we respond to life. You think about that. God just rejected his sacrifice. That must have been really hard. He's looking at his brother going, why him and not me? Right? So, so Cain's depression and his anger is coming from how he's interpreting what's going on and how he's responding to that situation. But God says there's hope. You can respond differently and those depression feelings will be alleviated. Secondly, effective feelings are designed by God to be indicators of the heart's inner working. They are meant to provoke introspection and evaluation. That's what God's illustrating here. That depression and anger is designed by God to say, wait a minute. What's going on inside me? Why do I feel like this? Remember we talked about last hour, negative feelings, unpleasant feelings are designed as a spiritual warning system to alert us that there's something in the inner man that needs to be addressed. And that's what's going on here. So they're meant to provoke that. And uh, we won't turn there, but there's a great little section at the end of Jonah. You remember Jonah? He goes and he preaches the most pathetic sermon in the whole Bible. After running away from God. And the whole country repents. It's like the biggest revival in the Bible. And you'd think that Jonah would be getting, you know, book contracts and, and movie, you know. And instead, what does he do? He goes and he sulks and he gets angry and he goes to God and he says, I just knew you would do this. Because you're a God of compassion and grace and you're slow to anger and you're about it. And he's angry at God for saving the Ninevites. And we know there's there's cultural factors that that probably influence that. But the point was, his anger was an expression of his 
disagreement with how God handled the situation. His emotion was not random. It wasn't something that just happened to him. It was a heart response that led to that effective feeling. That's what an emotion is. And uh, in this case, uh, God has a very similar conversation with Jonah as he does with Cain. He says, do you have good reason to be angry? And Jonah says, I have every reason to be angry. Because you're a God of compassion and grace. Right? So, um, Right? But that, that's, that's, the emotion is reflecting the fact that there's things in his heart that need to be addressed. Thirdly, God intends for believers to live by faith, not feelings. Trust in Christ and obedience to his word should guide and direct the Christian. Feelings should not become the governor or motivator of the Christian life. Um, I'm going to say this, and, and, and you guys give me negative reviews if you agree, okay? Disagree. Your feelings and my feelings are liars. Right? I know what country music says. I know it says follow your heart and just do... I I know that. Don't get your theology from country music. Because our feelings are liars. Our feelings will create blasphemous notions of what God is like, of what's actually going on in the world... And our feelings were never meant to be the hands on the steering wheel of your life. And yet, you know what? I don't know about you. I give my feelings the steering wheel way too much. And part of what happens in depression, like in lots of emotions, is that we're giving those feelings authority that God never intended them to have. Right? We're to live by faith, not feeling. Faith means I believe what God says and I act accordingly instead of how I feel about a situation. Now, let's be honest. Feelings are really, really strong. They feel almost too strong to resist. But did you know that's precisely how your feelings get advantage of you? They deceive you into thinking they cannot be resisted. When God says, my grace is sufficient. Okay, So trusting Christ and obedience is the course, not letting feelings govern. Psalm 42, Psalm 43. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I will again praise Him. What is the psalmist doing in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43? Who's he talking to? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Who is the psalmist talking to there? Himself. And I would suggest to you that talking to yourself is not a feature of a mental illness. (laughs) Talking to yourself is a crucial skill of biblical maturity. That's what that psalm is illustrating. In that psalm, the psalmist is saying to himself, Why are you despairing? Why are you disturbed within me? That's how we feel sometimes, right? And then what does he say? He grabs himself by the collar as it were and he preaches to himself hope in God believe in God we we didn't read it in the latter half of Lamentations 3 but that's where Jeremiah goes what turns Lamentations around what turns Jeremiah around in his depression is he stops listening to himself and he starts talking to himself you know it the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never, never cease his compassions never fail they are new every morning great is your faithfulness. Yes, that's where the hymn comes from, right there, Lamentations 3. 
And that's the turning point of the lament. So we need to learn to talk to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves. Listen to Lloyd-Jones in his classic Spiritual Depression. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Tweet it. Because that's <laughs> awesome. All right. It, actually, it's not called tweet anymore. I, what, what's, what's, the, what's the verb? I don't even want to know what the verb is. Let's move on. Okay. Um, Listen to Ed Welch. Uh, we, t- we quoted him earlier. In depression, the new way of living is to believe and act on what God says rather than feel what God says. That part of Lamentations that I read with Jeremiah, what he was doing is he was feeling what God was saying and it was leading them to depression. What he does in the latter half is he speaks the promises of God to himself and that leads him to peace. Adam says something very similar. <laughs> You want to ward off your depression? Do this. Don't follow your feelings. Don't follow them. If you have a responsibility to discharge, you know what God wants you to do? By God's grace, do it. Okay. I'm sorry. It's that recovering engineer thing again. Um, all right. I, I have some engineers in here that actually love this, right? Where, where are you? Brothers, sisters, where are you? Okay. All right. You're there. Okay. So let me orient you so you don't feel overwhelmed. Um, we're going to start right here. Okay? A very good place to start. Right there. Okay. You have some circumstance in life, a loss, a grief, a financial issue, a hard time, a difficult relationship, some circumstance in life, and that presses down on you. And you've got a decision to make, don't you? You can turn to God by grace through faith. For, for God's glory, to please Him, right? To, to, and when you do that, when trusting in God's grace, you turn to Him for help, for His glory, to honor Him, guess what that brings? Biblical hope. Or, when that circumstance presses down on you, you can go a different way. You can run away from God instead of turning to Him. And you know, one of the, one of the most dangerous parts of depression is it will tempt you to run away from the one person that can help you. Jonah does it. Jeremiah does it. The psalmist does it. And that's why God is this monster. God's out to get me. Job does it. I don't want, I'm going the opposite direction when in reality God's the only one that can help you. Which is why you have to believe the promises of God and recount the character of God rather than feel like God's out to get you and then run away from Him. Does that make sense? So this is the path to depression when instead of turning to God, we turn away from Him, realizing that we're trusting ourselves instead of Him, and that leads to things like guilt, discouragement, despair, and when we feel horrible, then when another situation happens, similar to this one, we turn away from God, we repeat the thing, well then we go down here, we feel worse, same situation, we feel worse, we turn away from God again, this, we call this the spiral of depression. Because all of a sudden, you're running away from God, running away from God. Every time you do, you feel worse. And you spiral down to utter despair and hopelessness. And when you get down here, this, this is what we're talking about when we say clinical depression. When you've turned away from God, you're feeling horrible, you turn away, you feel worse, and now you're down here. Now the good news is, we know why it happened, right? It all started right here. So if you're down here, guess what? You can turn to God. Isn't that what we see in Jeremiah? He says, you know, uh, I've forgotten happiness. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I've lost hope in the Lord. 
And then he says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. And we go, wait, what? What did you recall to mind, Jeremiah, that led you from hopelessness to hope? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. All it took was a turning away from that downward spiral to God to help. He's recounting God. He's remembering promises. He's rehearsing the character of God. He's preaching to himself. And all of a sudden, he's here where he was here. Now, does that mean that you can go from despair to hope, you know, in three seconds? No, that's not what it means. What it does mean is there is a hopeful process that we can come alongside and help despairing people to follow. That they're not stuck in their depression. They're they're not just, that's just not going to happen and they can't get out. There is a way out as we lead them to turn to God and provide His, and find His means of grace. Okay, does that make sense? So you're going to hopefully appreciate the chart, even if you're not an engineer sometime, because this is graphically explaining all this biblical data in terms of what's actually happening in a moment of depression. Another thing we want to do as we're trying to help people understand depression, we're building a biblical model here, is to listen to it. Remember, your emotions are saying something about you. Your emotions are saying something about you. Remember I said we don't follow our feelings, right? We don't follow our emotions like we listen to them and they're going to direct us. But we don't want to ignore our emotions either. Because our emotions are windows into the inner man. Our emotions are telling us what's going on in here in terms of our thinking, our worship, our desires, our affections. And so Ed Welch in his very helpful book, it's a little booklet on depression, He talks about listening to your depression. In other words, what is that emotion saying about yourself? Uh, Sometimes your depression might be saying, I'm afraid, or I'm guilty, or I'm ashamed. It might be saying, I lost something. Interestingly enough, research continues to to demonstrate that 90% of clients diagnosed with a major depressive disorder have experienced loss. That's really interesting, isn't it? So loss seems to lead to depression in many cases. So we want to ask the question, well, what did I lose and how am I responding to that, right? I I lost a spouse, I lost a loved one, I lost my health, I lost my house, Uh, anger, I must avoid something. So listen to depression. Depression is saying something about you. And if we can help our friends that we're dealing with in counseling, listen to their depression, it's going to reveal their heart and hopefully illuminate a path Uh, that leads to biblical help. I put this in your notes here. One of the things we need to do is adopt a biblical view of sadness and grief. Like I mentioned, if I called up my 96-year-old grandmother and talked about grief and loss and sorrow, she would be, that's grief and loss and sorrow. If I talk to my teenagers about grief and loss and sorrow, they're like, oh, this is so depressing. This is so stressful. So angry. Right? Talk to me here, parents. Is that how it goes? And so you realize part of that is we have lost a biblical view of sadness. Our culture, when we experience sadness or grief, we immediately see that as a problem to immediately fix. But can we remember something? The Lord Jesus, who was the perfect God-man, experienced grief. 
He wept at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. He wept over Jerusalem and their unrepentance, right? There is such a thing as godly grief and we shouldn't run away from it. We need to learn how to grieve and lament and deal with sadness in a biblical way. And so I put that in your notes just because it's so helpful. Part of dealing with depression is helping people to understand a biblical view of sadness and grief. It's not something to run away from. It's not something to you know, fix right away that, that sometimes grieving is a very godly thing. Okay, so you're going to counsel your friend who's struggling with depression. Look for both suffering and sin. Um, we recognize like in, in Lamentations, Jeremiah was really suffering. Jerusalem just got annihilated by the Babylonians. He spent 40 years preaching against the pe- to the people to repent so that that wouldn't happen. It just happened. That's really hard. But Jeremiah was also guilty of sinning because he was letting his feelings re-image God into something that he was not. And that led him to despair. So in depression, remember, you probably have someone who's suffering and someone who's sinning who's sitting in front of you. And you need to help minister to both of those. Look for spiritual accomplices. Depression rarely works alone. So look for... These are all verses in the Bible that say depression goes with other things. So look for it, right? You'll see depression going with all sorts of things like anger, misplaced trust, believing lies, hopelessness, shame, guilt, etc. Look for spiritual accomplices. Depression rarely works alone. Okay? So what's our counseling procedure? Uh, Again, a lot of this follows what you learned last weekend. Let me just fill in some areas here for you, okay? Um, Some things that are unique for depression. One of the things we're going to do that is unique is we're going to especially look to evaluate if the person is struggling with suicidal thoughts. We want to try to evaluate that quickly. And if they are struggling, we want to intervene appropriately. Okay, And uh, we have whole talks in our advanced track about what we do uh, when there's a a suicidal idolation or thought and and how we do that. But the point is we want to make sure that they are safe and not in danger of harming themselves um, if if that is a thought. We also want to get them to their doc, have a regular medical checkup if, if they haven't been since the onset of their depressed symptoms. We want to minister biblical hope. We talked about that in weekend one. We want to ensure that the counselee has trusted Christ. If not, we want to lead them to Christ and call them to repentant faith in Jesus. One of the things I've found in in counseling depression is um, introduce them to stories in the Bible where men and women struggle with depression. I find that a lot of Christians are embarrassed to even talk about their depression because they feel like it's a deficiency of faith and that you know they're a second-class Christian because they feel like that. So even admitting it is hard. And so one of the things I want to do to care for them is to show them in the Bible there are people here that experience the same things you're experiencing. And they found hope in God, which means you can find hope in God. And uh, so the Psalms, the book of Lamentations are great places to go there. Help them to actively turn to Christ. Remember remember the diagram a minute ago? We don't want them to turn away from God. We want them to turn toward Him in trust and faith. Help them to do that. Um, Bring them out of... Depression is very isolating, right? People kind of close up. They kind of turn in. They withdraw from other relationships. And you're trying to help them to see that if they turn in, that's just going to make the problem worse. Help them to look up to help in God, most importantly, and then help them to look out 
to people in their life that God has put there, local church, family, to say, hey, God's giving you provisions to help. And, and, and don't turn in. Don't, don't, don't avoid the means of grace that God has put in your life to help. Um, active engagements in Christian relationships, ministering biblical truths, all those things I just showed you in the previous outline there, help them to understand their depression. Expect that your friend will have a deficient view of depression. Expect that they will have a secular view. They, they said, this is my genes, this is my biology, i got a chemical imbalance. Uh, you know, and, and you can say, you know what, some, some of that may be part of the story. But, but this is what's really important, to see that God has a biblical way of helping you to understand and a biblical intervention to follow. Okay? Um, now, as you're doing that, um, you're getting to know this. You're getting to know the person. You're asking questions. You're loving them. You're gathering data. As you're doing that, you're taking that mask of depression off, aren't you? You're, you're looking behind the mask and going, what's back here? What's, what's inside here? And then as you're doing that, minister encouragement from the Bible where they are really suffering. Maybe they lost something, a loved one. Uh, maybe uh, they lost a job. Maybe they're going through a season where a child has abandoned the faith. Minister biblical encouragement. Minister the gospel of Christ to them. If there are issues of sin going on, maybe they're, they're, they're angry at God, they're bitter at this person, um, you, you know, they, they've responded in some unhelpful way here, lead them to the grace of repentance to receive God's forgiveness and change. So you remember all these things, right? That's what we're looking for. And uh, as you identify what's behind the depression, then you can bring an appropriate biblical solution for the actual cause. Um, there's some things uh, that I found to be particularly helpful, and so I'll just leave these up for you here for you. Leave these up to. I think I'm about done, guys. Um, I'm going to leave these up on the screen and for you to consider. There we go. And these are themes and dynamics in counseling. Let me just highlight one of them here. That middle one, taking every thought captive. Expect that your friend struggling with depression, that her thoughts are likely out of control. And she's going to feel out of control, and that's part of the reason she's even more depressed. But one way you're going to help her is to follow the advice that Paul gives the Philippians to learn to, to take, or, uh, to the Corinthians, to take every thought captive. What happens is these, these thoughts get out of control. The thoughts are directed toward things that aren't true, things that are not right, things that are deceptive. And she's letting all those thoughts lead her further down depression. What's going to help her is by God's grace, you help her to start taking ownership of her thoughts. She's going to say, I can't control my thoughts. You're going to say, by God's grace, Jesus says you can't. Can I help you? Can I walk alongside you? Can I assist you in learning how to do that? So that as she begins to take every thought captive, these thoughts that are leading to despair, you get her to say, that's not true. God hasn't abandoned me. God will forgive me. Uh, God's going to provide for my need. You know, she starts taking those thoughts captive and saying, you know, all these things I'm believing are not true. And instead, Philippians says what? Think on things that are true and right and, and excellent. And replacing those wrong thoughts with biblical thoughts. Help her to get her thoughts captive. And that often the turning point in depression counseling is when that starts to happen. Okay. 
And then I gave you some homework assignments here. Um, uh, Pastor Terry is going to talk about homework tomorrow. But uh, just some things that are going to really help in terms of homework assignments. Getting her in the spiritual disciplines. Engaging in Christian relationships. Taking practical steps of faith and obedience. Taking thoughts captive, as we just talked about. Reading assignments. There's some great uh, pamphlets at the end of your notes there to consider. A thankfulness journal. Just every day, write one thing that you can be thankful for. And what that does, that starts to chip away at the negativity that says, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. And she starts seeing, you know, depression is very myopic. You're you're kind of just stuck looking like this. And that thankfulness journal opens up her perspective. So she starts to see, you know what? God's doing a lot of beautiful things in my life. I'm just not paying attention to them. So get her looking at that. Get him looking at that. The sanctificational use of solid Christian music You know, when you hurt so much, let the Word of God be sung to you through Christian music. Okay, and there's our resources. Um, Let me pray and I'll let you go to your break. Um, Father, thanks uh, for this uh, wonderful grace that we have a great Savior that will meet us in depression and discouragement and lead us to hope and peace. I pray, Lord, as we deal with our own depression, as we come alongside others, that we will be able to minister the grace of Jesus. Uh, to help and hope those that are struggling. Thank you for the privilege of getting to care for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.